So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Once again, remember what I said last week. Who was here last week? Show of hands. All right, that's good. Remember, I said last week, you are allowed to disagree with me tonight, okay? That's okay. You are allowed to disagree with me, but I'm going to give you um, what I believe concerning end of times and how I got to this particular place in a sermon entitled The End of Redemptive History. Now, let me tell you this. This would probably go a lot better with a big old packet of notes in your hand right now. And so I'm going to try and remember everyone that was here tonight and send you notes on the other side because as I was typing these in and trying to give you what to go away with tonight, I thought, well, I've got two options. I can give you two to three pages or I can uh, email you uh, tomorrow. And so I think I'm going to try and do that uh, um, so that would be a help to you. All right, let's start by reading 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. 1 Corinthians 50 through 54. We've gone through this study for quite some time. This will be, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. Uh, we've gone through this study for a couple months now. We've enjoyed it. It's been a, a great study. Brother Justin's going to close it out for us next week. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed it, Resurrection Hope. Uh, but this is um, uh, where we're going to be. I'm going to read verses 50 through 54, 1 Corinthians 15, and then I'm going to uh, really just look at verse 54, okay? Clear as mud. Here we go. <clears throat> now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And here's verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to bring to your attention why I kind of lean towards an amillennialist view. Uh, if you type the word rapture into any search engine, uh, you'll find an overwhelming amount of information. Uh, everything from a simple definition to elaborate sites that claim to prepare one for the inevitable rapture that will occur. In fact, one website I was reading through actually had information on how to keep the website going after the operator of the website had been raptured. Uh, rapture is a term to describe the belief that the church will be taken away in a moment in the future just before a time of great tribulation, right? That's how we understand rapture. It's a term to describe the belief that the church will be taken away in the future just before a time of great tribulation. And the rapture is usually always associated and taught through what we would call a premillennial view that envisions the return of Christ in really two parts. This is kind of how the premillennium envisions the return of Christ. First, you will have Christ gather his church either secretly uh, or not secretly and take them away. And then you have Christ returns after a seven-year tribulation or several-year tribulation where he defeats his enemy and rules for a thousand years, a millennium, here on the earth. Then, and only then, at the end of all of that, will you have the final and utter defeat of God's enemies and the creation of the new heavens and a new earth. Now, 
Uh, You may ask, what in the world does that have to do with what I read in verse 54? Well, I'm telling you this because our passage today, especially is seen in light of what the rest of Scripture has to say about Christ's return, has really caused me to lean against a premillennial view. In fact, the big idea of what I think today's passages really means is is that when Christ returns, he's going to bring heaven with him. When Christ returns, that will be the end of redemptive history. This is the view that I hold. The return of Christ, that'll be the end of redemptive history. I think that this is actually a good and necessary implication of verse 54. And uh, in order to prove that, we're going to have to deal directly with it today as we take on this verse. But I want to be sensitive again to the fact that for many... This will contradict what you've learned elsewhere, what you may have picked up along the way. And, and listen, I, hear me, I don't take that lightly. I'm not attempting to tear down anyone's view. As I've said, you're welcome to disagree with me with this sermon and this sermon alone, okay? Uh, but let me assure you, first of all, this is not a gospel issue, okay? Regardless of what you believe about how it's all going to play out when Christ returns, if you belong to Christ when he returns, you're going with him. All right? Amen? All right. So now we got the niceties out of the way. Let's look at verse 54. Let's read this together one more time. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now we've already seen what has really come before this as we've studied 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's referring to that which is going to take place in a moment. Remember, in the twinkling of an eye, he says. And we saw how that's very clearly referring to the return of Christ. So when Christ returns, the dead are going to be raised. And to those who are still alive, what's going to happen? Well, even us, we will be transformed and we will receive our glorified bodies. Now, in this passage, Paul is saying, when this happens, this saying is going to be fulfilled. This shall be brought to pass, he says, the saying that is written. Well, what shall be brought to pass? Death is swallowed up in victory. But specifically, what is going to be brought to pass? What is Paul referring to? Well, this quote is actually taken from Isaiah 25, 8. And this, really, the context of Isaiah 25, 8, is what I believe he's saying is going to be brought to pass. The transformation of those who belong to Christ will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 25. That's what I believe is going to happen here. The transformation of of those who belong to Christ will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. And so I want you, if you can, to turn there with me to Isaiah 25. And I want to read that together as we dive down deep into what Paul is saying this is going to be brought to pass. Isaiah 25, I'm going to start reading at verse 6. God's word says, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of uh, well-refined wines on the lees. Uh, This is a picture of the victory of God for his people. Do you know what this is often referred to? This is what we refer to as the wedding feast. Have you ever heard that? Uh, When Christ returns, this is painted as that wedding feast which will be celebrated and enjoyed by all of God's people. 
Isaiah continues in verse 7. He says, And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. Notice, that's a universal promise, right? All nations are there. This goes beyond the borders of, of Israel, goes beyond the borders of Jerusalem, of, of Judah, all the way to the ends of the earth. It includes all nations. And then verse 8, what does it say? He will swallow up death forever. That's actually the quote that Paul quotes here. A death will be swallowed up in victory. The word forever can actually be directly translated as victory. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. This is a picture of the end. And we're going to see that more clearly as we move along, but I wanted to state it up front. Uh, and, and remember where we've also been. We've already heard Paul talk about this in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 and 26. Look at what he says back there. Sorry, I have hair in my mouth somehow. I can't, I can't focus, okay? All right. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 to 26. This is what Paul says. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. So if you have Christ the firstfruits, you have all those who belong to Christ when he returns, and then what happens comes the end, meaning that is the end. Right after that, that's the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We've already seen this, haven't we? Paul explained that when Christ returns, those who belong to Christ will be raised from the dead and the end will come. Christ is now, during this age, steadily defeating all of uh, Satan's enemies, or, or all of God's enemies, right? He's conquering rebellious hearts among one heart at a time. Uh, Christ, even now, is advancing his kingdom, isn't he? Is he not established his kingdom and, and the outpost of his kingdom throughout all creation? Yes, the authorities and powers of this evil age continue to array themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ, but remember, church, they do so in vain. When Christ returns, the end will come. Death, the last enemy, will be destroyed. This is what we learned from verses 23 and 26 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now in verse 54, Paul's focusing on the fact that this is the end of redemptive history. That is what was promised. This is what the Israelites were waiting for in the day of Jesus. This is what caused them in some way to stumble over Jesus' ministry. Remember? They were like, hey, where's the wedding feast? Where's the defeat of God's enemies? Where's the defeat of death? There is this pause in redemptive history, and I believe that that pause is now. That that pause is now in the age of grace. Verse 54, once again. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought the past that is saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. See, in verse 54, Paul is simply saying that when Christ returns, the dead are raised incorruptible, and the end has come, period. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Paul is teaching that our hope is in the return of Christ, because when he returns, the end has come. That's why we've been praying together, come Lord Jesus, right? 
Not because the return of Christ will initiate a new stage of redemptive history, but because redemptive history will come to an end. So we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see really two and only two events taking place. Okay, we first, we see the death and resurrection of Christ proclaimed by Paul, which secures our resurrection. We've gone over that over and over again. We've seen that completely unpacked. The death and resurrection of Christ proclaimed by Paul that secures our resurrection. Everything else we've learned about the resurrection, whether it be glorified bodies or the kingdom of God, is grounded in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's the heart of the gospel, right? Uh, Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised for our justification. We will be raised from the dead because he was raised from the dead. We will have imperishable glorified bodies. Why? Because he has already been clothed with the imperishable. We will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus has defeated all of our enemies through his death and resurrection. That's the first event. Here's the second event. The second event is this. Christ's return, the resurrection of the dead, the transformation of believers, and the end of redemptive history. Now, you might think, this is really the argument. Are those four separate things that happen at four separate stages? I don't think so. I don't think at Christ's return, there's a stop. And then there's a resurrection of the dead, and there's a stop. And there's a transformation of believers, and then there's a stop, and there's the end of redemptive history. It'd be foolish uh, to read the text that way. I think this is all one event. Christ's return, the resurrection of the dead, the transformation of believers, and the end of redemptive history. So this is really what I want to send you in your notes. I want to put this piece by piece here. This is how it kind of would flow, okay? So pay attention with me. Death is the last enemy, okay? Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15 says that. Death is the last enemy. Death is defeated, which means no more enemies, okay? Death will be swallowed up when the corruptible puts on the incorruptible. That's what the text says, okay? The corruptible will put on the incorruptible when... When Christ returns. So when Christ returns, death will be defeated and the end will come. Did you get all that? You want me to do it one more time? Well, that's a resounding meh. So, okay. Uh, that's the breakdown. When Christ returns, death, the last enemy, is defeated. That's it. Game over. All she wrote. That's the end of redemptive history. And really, this goes beyond verse 54, which is what I want to kind of uh, show you. This is actually confirmed by the very verses that some use to what I think teach a premillennial view. And that's my argument this evening. What I've just unpacked in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, is actually supported and confirmed in my mind in those very verses that are used as proof texts for the premillennial view. So I'm speaking specifically of two particular verses. And the first one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so let's ask that question. Does this fit with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? I know we're going to get there soon in our study in 1 Thessalonians. But if you've noticed our pace, soon means 2027, okay? Uh, but I, I, want to, I want to see it for yourself tonight so we can unpack it on a Sunday night so you don't riot when I preach it on Sunday morning, Okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 18. Let's go ahead and turn there if you can. Here's what the Word of God says. This is a text that I love to read at funerals because it's uh, really a marvelous text. 
Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay. Uh, this is uh, probably, in my opinion, the primary proof text of uh, the view of premillennialism or of the premillennialist rapture. But before we totally unpack it, we got to remember what we learned this morning. What was the author's intended purpose here? Well, I think the author's intended purpose is given to us in verse 18. What does he say? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Um, it should be noted, Paul's primary text, or primary purpose in this text, is not to give them a full-blown theology of the resurrection like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, nor is it uh, purpose to unpack all of his eschatology, okay? His purpose is again found in verse 18, encouragement. He wanted his readers to be assured that those who had perished before Christ's return would still be with Christ. They would still inherit the kingdom of God. The dead would be raised, in fact. They would be raised first. In other words, the dead are at no disadvantage. That is Paul's purpose in point. So those who are dead will rise first. And then Paul writes in verse, uh, verses 16 and 17 these words, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When will this happen? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, We'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with... The trumpet of God. We've unpacked that two weeks ago, didn't we? That that's going to be in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And so in a moment, the Lord will descend, the dead will be raised, and death will be swallowed up in victory. The end has come. It's right there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So how is this passage in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, used to teach premillennialism? How is it that this verse is used to support a view that some will be taken away while death and destruction continues on earth? Quite simply, it's verse 17, isn't it? You probably thought about it when you read it. It's hard to explain and understand there. Paul writes in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Not quite sure what to do with that, right? But as we looked at this morning, remember... We talked about understanding the author's original intent and who else's original reading of it? The audience. Think about this. It's highly unlikely that the original audience, the church at Thessalonica, would have interpreted this as a rapture verse. Uh, the residents of a city like Thessalonica would have read these words in their own historical context. And in their context, listen to me, it was expected that if a king or a powerful dignitary came to a city like theirs, they would not wait for the king inside the city. They would flow out of the city to welcome the king. 
They would exit the city to welcome the king. Not, by the way, to go back to where the king came from, but to bring him into the city. This is common courtesy. And furthermore, not even historical context, if that's unconvincing in its common context, the Greek word in verse 17 translated to meet is the word apentesis, okay? Apentesis, and, and the ESV study Bible has this note about the word. Listen, it says this Greek term is often used if an important dignitary's reception by the inhabitants of a city who come out and greet and welcome their honored guest with fanfare and celebration, then accompany him into the city. The actual verb means that. That's how it's often used. In fact, that's the way it's used in Matthew 25, 6, which is another eschatological parable. And at a midnight cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. What did the bridesmaids do when they went out to meet the bridegroom? They didn't go back to where the bridegroom came from. They brought him into the house and everyone else was left outside. Friends, I, I really believe that likewise, when Christ returns, we'll meet him in the air, yes. And we can debate what that looks like. Is that figurative language, whether we'll actually leave the ground or is it a, a word picture from the apocalyptic genre? That's not the point. The point is we will meet him in the air and I believe that meeting him in the air is to bring him in, not to go somewhere else, not to be whisked away at that moment. And now granted, that verse itself does not say where we will go, it doesn't. It simply says we'll meet him in the air. But given the historical context and the Greek words translated to meet, it seems to me more likely that we're accompanying him to earth rather than some form of exodus of being taken away from earth. And furthermore, think about this. This is an important point to our text. Premillennialism teaches that those who believe in Christ are taken away and Christ comes down to earth. That there's a switcheroo done, right? Where death and destruction increases on the earth. And here's where that view runs into real problems when we understand and interpret verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15. It, it would be more like that verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 saying this, that the corruptible puts on the incorruptible, the mortal puts on immortality, and then death has its way for a while. Death continues on and on and on for a period of years. But that's not what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When Christ returns, we are made imperishable and death is swallowed up in victory. So I believe that fits in line with 1 Thessalonians 4. But what about Revelation 20? Revelation 20, we read this last week, so I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I'm not going to read it. Hopefully you're familiar with it a little bit. Uh, this is the only passage in the New Testament where it speaks about the millennium, the thousand-year reign. So doesn't that contradict what I have attempted to say so far? I don't believe it does. We read this last week. I'm not going to read it again. So let me just say on the outset, I'm, I'm not attempting to unpack Revelation 20 in any kind of thorough way tonight. Okay, You're looking at your watches. You know I don't have time to do that. Uh, but what I'm about to do with this text is going to be looking at it in light of our text in 1 Corinthians 15.54 to see if it indeed contradicts what I've said that our text says or not. It's my only goal here. So Revelation 20, when we read this, friends, it's in the apocalyptic genre, which means it's filled with symbolism. Apocalyptic genre is always, always, always filled 
with symbolism, which means we are not meant to read all of these things literally. For instance, the dragon will be sealed up in a hole somewhere with a cover and seal. That's a picture. Uh, Remember, the entire book of Revelation is as though someone pulled back the screen and allowed John to peek in behind the scenes into the spiritual world that parallels our own. John is seeing what has been happening throughout redemptive history from that perspective. So we expect to see symbolism when we read Revelation 20. We don't read dragons, bowls of wrath, and those type of things and think literal bowls sitting with saran wrap over them and then God opens it up and then his anger comes out. That's not a, that's a literal reading of that. I don't know if we should read it in that light because of its genre, Okay. Doesn't mean it's any less the word of God. Doesn't mean it's not profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. No, it's just the genre that it's in. I'm not sure you should read it literally. Likewise, numbers are symbolic in apocalyptic literature. Numbers are something that are always symbolic in uh, apocalyptic literature. For instance, a thousand is a number that means a lot, complete, total. When the psalmist writes that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, it doesn't mean that he only owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he stops owning number a thousand and one. It means literally he owns all of them. They all belong to him. There is more than a thousand hills and they all belong to God ultimately. In the same way, when Peter says a thousand years is as one day to the Lord, he he does not mean in heaven there's a wall somewhere where there's a calendar where each day counts as a millennium. It just means a really long time is nothing to the Lord. And so I think we need to read that thousand years. I think it's okay to read that thousand years as figurative because it's apocalyptic literature. Finally, and this brings us back to our verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. At the end of Revelation 20, you know what we see? At the end of this a thousand year reign, do you know what happens? It says at the end of a thousand years, Satan is thrown into the pit, the lake of fire. And who follows him? Death. Right behind him. The last enemy being death. Satan thrown in first. The dead are raised. Death has given up the dead. Why? Because King Jesus is back. He sits on his throne. Death has nothing it can say against him. So Jesus comes out and all, they all come out and he separates them as sheep and goats. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, which God's people will never experience. Why? Because of 1 Corinthians 15, 54, we've already been clothed in incorruptible bodies, immortal bodies where they will reign with Christ forever and ever in a new heavens and new earth. There's one final point that I want to uh, bring to your attention from 1 Corinthians 15, 54. And as I was studying this verse, I think this is the connection I'm about to show you is really what compelled me to even spend any time talking about this at this particular time. Why talk about amillennialism? Why talk about eschatology now? When Christ returns, redemptive history will come to its glorious conclusion. And we see that when Paul writes what he writes again in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. I want to bring your minds back to Isaiah 25. Do you remember what Isaiah was talking about? The wedding feast? It was a picture of every tear being wiped away, wasn't it? He says that. This is a picture of the new heaven and new earth. That phrase. This is a picture of the end. 
The connection is those words in Isaiah 25.8 are echoed in Revelation 21. Words in Isaiah 25.8, they're echoed in Revelation 21. So, so think about this. This is after Revelation 20. So death is thrown into the lake of fire. But then what happens? Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice God's people aren't going anywhere. Jesus returns and he brings heaven with him. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's a covenantal promise. God's people under, God, under, God, under God's rule in God's place. Complete. It's what we talk about when we talk about the kingdom. In verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. That's Isaiah 25, 8. <laughs> That's exactly what we read, and it's exactly what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. When does this happen? When Christ returns and death is defeated. It's a picture of death being swallowed up in victory. This is the end of redemptive history. Here's the point. Paul is closing his teaching on the resurrection. Mind you, the clearest and most extensive teaching of the resurrection in all of the Bible. He is closing this teaching with a quote of Isaiah that teaches about the consummation of God's kingdom, the end of redemptive history. This is reinforced by John's vision written down for us in Revelation 21, a passage that echoes Isaiah 25. Paul is clearly saying, when Christ returns, I believe this, we're changed and that's the end. But I want to really close by addressing the question that might seem really obvious at this point. So what? <laughs> Does it matter? And here's where I want to give you why I believe that regardless of where you stand in eschatology, I really think you should live as an amillennialist. Here's why. Regardless of where you stand, I believe you should live like an amillennialist. And first is because of the clarity of our hope. What is it that we're hoping for? Are we really hoping to be whisked away? Or are we daily praying for the return of Christ so that this evil age may come to an end? Our hope is in the return of our Lord who will make all things new. Not for us to leave while the world goes on with its struggles. I really think it clarifies our hope. But I also think it matters in regard to our evangelization it puts an urgency to our evangelization listen if you believe that this period of grace is going to come with another period where people will have even more reason to believe as several billion people have disappeared suddenly with all sorts of prophetic signs you might be tempted to think that the proclamation of the gospel now is not quite as important as it might be but if this is it if this is the season of grace, this is, the Lord, this is the time of the Lord, now is the day of salvation. When Christ returned, the dead are raised, and those who rejected Christ will be separated from him forever. That's it, which means the gospel we proclaim is a really urgent message. And finally, I really think we should live as an all-millennialist because... It means we can exhaust all of our labor in the gospel, if you will. It means there is absolutely no restraint in our Christian labor. Bear with me. Our ministries, whatever form they take, 
Paul's point in just a few verses is going to be just this. I think Justin's going to teach on this next week. In 1 Corinthians 15, he ends with, with verse 58. Remember that? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Friends, you and I, we can spend it all. We can spend every bit of it. Because at the end of this, when Christ returns, he's bringing heaven with him. I really believe that. Don't hold anything back. Run like the end of the race is near. Do not store up treasures on earth where you have everything already stored up in Christ in heaven. No distractions, no more reading signs of the times, no trying to figure out when that day is coming, right? You can give it all. And at the end of the day, always be prepared. In almost all of these passages about the end, this is always really the point. Always be prepared. Revelation itself was just hope for those who are being persecuted. It was meant to strengthen them in an hour of great persecution where many were losing their life to, to give them hope. Jesus' word after teaching about his return was, be ready. Don't worry about the day and hour, but be ready. So my prayer in the midst of this is that we would likewise encourage one another, spur one another on in good works. So when the Lord returns, we might rejoice together in what the Lord has accomplished with us, through us. And that's really my prayer. So, okay, I'm done. That's the application. I really feel like, you know, I always try and choose the safer of the options, right? My heart kind of lends toward continuationism when it comes to gifts of the Spirit, but I live as if I'm a cessationist, right? If you don't know what that means, then... Come see me after service. And though I may, I may change my mind in a year about my, what my view of eschatology is, friends, I think it's the right way to live as an all-millennialist. That at the end, it's it. That when Christ returns, he's bringing heaven with him. And we live on new, in the new heavens and new earth forever together. Fully restored, fully redeemed. I think we should live that way. So I pray that you would join me in that. And listen, let's not allow this to be a time for um, division. As you know, I've given you permission. You're free to disagree. We can have conversations. Don't you think we need to have disagreements in this time and day? I feel like nobody can disagree on anything anymore. So if you disagree, that's okay. Let's talk about it. We'll work it out together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us to our own devices or to attempt to come up with our own understanding of how these things are going to happen. But I believe that you've given us all that we need to know in your word. Father, the reason we don't have clarity of this is simply because we're sinners in need of grace. And not only that, but Father, we just need to give ourselves to your word. We just need to study it. If we would read it in in light of other scriptures, if we would improve our interpretation of your word, our hermeneutics, we come to understand that our great hope is in the return of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That our hearts might burn with a longing, not to simply just be taken away, but to indeed see our Lord Jesus return and all things be made right. Father, give us that yearning. Set our hearts on that particular hope this evening. And Father, help us live even now in such a way that we conform to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
that we are about the business of wherever we are and whatever relationship we are engaging in, we are about the business of making your gospel known. Father, we thank you for your promises, all of which are yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach our hearts to worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.